Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. It is often assumed that American politics is dominated by financial elites in the 1%, who use their massive wealth to gain power and influence, pushing for legislation that benefits them at the expense of everyone else. The actual mechanics of how this all works, however, are often difficult to see and understand. Obscured by distortion via the media, politicians, and the stories we often tell ourselves about how political change happens. These narratives often tell us about noble figures who come forward with powerful speeches and pieces of legislation that push us forward, as well as figures who sell out and cave to the powers that be. What these narratives often leave out is the broader context that those leaders were in the middle of, not only shaping but being shaped by the organizing that was happening around them. Filling in this gap are my guests today, Kevin Young and Michael Schwartz, here to discuss their book, Levers of Power, How the 1% Rules and What the 99% Can Do About It. A work of political theory, sociology, and history, this book covers a lot of different areas, but underlying it all is a belief in the importance of mass organizing to resist the power of capital. The first half of the book delivers an insightful and critical look at the Obama presidency, looking at his failures and limitations when it came to healthcare reform, Wall Street regulation, and environmental protection, looking to understand the underlying mechanics of his political orientations and how they were insufficient for the tasks at hand. The later chapters of the book then look at various political successes such as the labor movements during the Depression of the 1930s and the struggles for civil rights in the 1960s, analyzing the ways massive organizing efforts were made to apply political and financial pressure and force capital to come to the bargaining table. Written with a brilliant combination of academic rigor and accessibility, this is a how-to guide for how to organize movements and challenge power and will be of interest not just to people who want to understand the world, but who also want to change it. Kevin Young is an assistant professor of history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and is also the author of Blood of the Earth, Resource Nationalism, Revolution, and Empire in Bolivia. Michael Schwartz is a distinguished professor emeritus of sociology at Stony Brook University, and is also the author of The War Without End. The Iraq War in Context. Tarun Banerjee, who was unable to join us, is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Pittsburgh. Kevin Young and Michael Schwartz, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having us. Yeah, good to be with you. All right, so before diving into this book in detail, I want to outline the overarching argument the book here is trying to make, particularly along the two key lines I think you're trying to develop. On the one hand, you're trying to give us a better understanding of how political power functions and is maintained. And on the other, you're trying to give us a better understanding of how that power can be resisted and challenged. So can you just give us a brief introductory outline of these two lines of argument? Sure. Well, as you said, the book is essentially a theory about how political power works in the United States. And by extension, we're also thinking about Uh, all modern-day capitalist societies throughout the world. Um, So as the subtitle of the book implies, uh, we're talking about the ways that the 1% wields political power, uh, which basically means the 
uh, leadership of the major corporations uh, and other powerful institutions uh, in our country. Um, and we're also talking about the ways that the 99% do or can at least wield uh, power themselves. So our argument about the ways that the 1% wields power differs from uh, the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom is that corporations and the wealthy uh, are able to exercise political leverage because they donate to politicians' campaigns, because they pay their armies of lobbyists to go to Washington and to uh, coerce politicians into giving them what they want. And there's, of course, a lot of truth to that. But what we argue in the book is that the 1% also possesses a lot of political power simply by virtue of its control over the economy and its control over the resources that the society depends upon. So because of the fact that corporations control access to investments and they control access to the loans and the jobs and the consumer products that all of us depend upon, they are able to exercise tremendous political leverage, even apart from uh, the campaign donations and the lobbying that they engage in. And so those, those weapons that they use, the campaign donations and, uh, and the lobbyists and so on, uh, really work in conjunction with um, this, this broader power that they possess through their ownership and control of the economy. Now, when it comes to social movements, when it comes to the ways that the population at large can uh, intervene in the political process and exercise its own political uh, leverage, uh, our argument is essentially that the power of the 99% comes not principally from elections, but from the power to withdraw participation or withhold participation um, in the society's dominant institutions. Um, so we can see that in the case of workers who refuse to work, consumers who refuse to buy, uh, tenants in an apartment building who refuse to pay rent. Uh, these forms of collective withholding of resources that capitalists depend upon. Um, so just as the 1% wields power through its ability to withhold the resources that the rest of us need, uh, we can wield political power uh, by withholding the resources uh, that allow capitalists to profit. All right, so to dive into this book in a bit more detail, a key to this book's understanding of political power is the capital strike. So to kick things off here, what is a capital strike and what is its broader political function? Um, well, the capital strike uh, is um, a term that may not be familiar to listeners, but just as the working class, just as workers can go on strike by withholding their labor, capitalists can go on strike too. They can withhold the investments uh, that they control, which translates into uh, employment and translates into loans that uh, homeowners and, and consumers depend upon and that businesses depend upon. Uh, so by withholding those investments from the economy, um, capitalists uh, are able to exercise political power. Um, now, again, this is in conjunction with the more familiar tools of uh, campaign finance or campaign donations and lobbying. So when businesses say, uh, we're not going to uh, hire workers, we're not going to make loans in the case of banks, um, and when they accompany uh, the withholding of those resources with demands on the government, 
demands for specific policy changes from the government. Uh, we call that the capital strike. And that's not a term that we have coined, but we are building upon uh, uh, other people who have uh, talked about this concept in previous decades. Uh, so we look specifically, we, we devote a lot of attention to the Obama years. And what we see again and again is that corporations uh, routinely withheld resources from the economy. They refused to hire workers. The banks refused to loan money. And they did that at the same time that they were making demands on the government. Uh, and that's that's the classic that's the classic pattern of the capital strike um, that we see from the Obama years. So they did that in order to demand uh, that first of all that the Obama administration take proactive measures on behalf of business. So they demanded that Obama, the Obama administration, uh, deregulated business activity, that it cut taxes for corporations and the rich, that it passed these so-called free trade agreements, which are you know, essentially handouts to uh, large corporations. Um, and it also used, they, the corporations also used the capital strike to uh, weaken and water down all of the major progressive reform initiatives that the Obama administration um, uh, introduced into Congress. So in the case of the Affordable Care Act in 2010, uh, the Wall Street Reform Act the same year, um, and essentially all of the other progressive initiatives that we saw from the administration, business wielded this threat uh, of the capital strike in order to water down those reforms as they, as they passed through the executive and then the, the legislative branches. Um, and at times they even killed the reforms entirely. So in the case of climate legislation, um, the threat of the capital strike uh, was an important reason why uh, no climate legislation effectively emerged from Congress during Obama's first uh, term in office. Uh, so the book spends a lot of time deconstructing many of the moves made throughout Obama's presidency. But before unpacking specific things he did, I want to ask about some of the underlying orientations you see that guided Obama and his administration that are worth bearing in mind. Um, and Kevin, you've been alluding to this already. Um, but as we look at his time in office, uh, one way you kind of suggest we frame thinking critically about his presidency is thinking about the disparity between the candidate Obama and the president Obama. So can you unpack this a little bit? Um, yes. Yeah, so yeah. I think that uh, one way to think about uh, a president, and I think this has been underscored tremendously during the uh, Trump administration, is to ask, well, how much independent power does the president have uh, unchecked by Congress or by the, uh, the judiciary? Uh, the famous balance of power in American society, which is always referred to as the sort of genius of the American political system. Um, so how much discretion does the president have at the get-go? How much can he do on his own? And, um, and how much is constrained either because they need legislative action or uh, some activity by the uh, government of uh, the executive would be uh, stopped by uh, intervention through the judiciary? And um, I think the way people thought, I have thought about <clears throat> the um, Obama administration 
is to puzzle over, well, we elected a, we elected a, a progressive and we didn't get too much progressive legislation out of it. And that's probably because Congress wouldn't allow them to do so. The, the obstreperous and very reactionary Republicans uh, were able to block most things. And the, the president didn't have much discretion that in, in the ways that he could act in, um, uh, in the major, the major things that he would like to do or what we would have liked him to do or what progressives thought he would want to do. And then when he didn't uh, accomplish these things, there emerged a debate, I think, on the left anyway, uh, uh, an important debate around, well, is this because Obama really wasn't a progressive and he didn't want to do these things? Or is it because he was really strung up by uh, the Congress and uh, the power of the Republicans, and then after two years, their control of the Senate, and on through that. And I think that here, there's a one very good graphic example that really calls this this issue into into um, uh, into relief, which is the uh, stimulus bill, because the stimulus bill. There's a lot to say about the stimulus bill, and um, and there are a lot of good things about it, and there's a lot of bad things about it. Uh, but one of the, the most interesting side effects of the, of the stimulus bill that people did not focus enough attention on is that there was this huge fight in Congress that the progressives won. And that was whether the environmental legislation that had been accumulating over the last 30, 40 years was going to apply to the stimulus bill, and especially with regard to the stimulus, the, the, the spending part of it, the $700 billion worth of spending that was gonna be allocated to various industries. And after a huge fight, uh, Congress passed and Obama signed legislation that said that all of the previous environmental legislation would be applied to the stimulus and that no stimulus was gonna be granted to projects that violated uh, or uh, inhibited uh, the environmental legislation intended to protect uh, against what has worked out to be global warming but, uh, and any number of other things that flow from that. Now, the interesting part of this is that when it came time to actually dole out the money for, to stimulate the economy after the crash, the Obama administration waived 97% of the funds from being constrained by environmental legislation. They simply, piece by piece, adjudicated that this, this, this uh, stimulus was needed and that they would have to waive the environmental regulations in order to allow it to go through. And they went ahead and did that. And so now this would suggest that, okay, so Obama just betrayed his, his, uh, uh, betrayed his promises. And he also betrayed the Congress, which had passed that this should not happen this way. And they gave the money to all sorts of, of, uh, hydrocarbon projects and, and all sorts of other, uh, other stimulus, the automobile industry, for example, was had had the environmental regulations waived, and they weren't going to have to 
meet all the requirements there, and so on and so forth. And what we would, what our argument su suggests is, is that this is it wasn't a matter of betrayal by Obama, though uh, perhaps he could have spent an awful lot of uh, political capital to uh, push through at least some of it, right? But rather, this was an application of a capital strike, and that what. Obama discovered was is that if he attempted to uh, to apply the environmental regulations and therefore deny funding to hydrocarbon and to fracking, which was the really biggest piece of all this, right? Uh, but also to uh, uh, nuclear energy, which uh, got a lot of stimulus and so on. Uh, what he would have discovered was is that the major investment firms of the world, not just the U.S. ones, but of the United States principally, would not be choosing to invest in the various projects that they were trying to stimulate, that the investment would be withdrawn. Now, the way this played out in practice was is that there was this uh, um, tremendous recession that was triggered not intentionally by the banks and the investors, but by the crash. And then the question was, what did the government have to do in order to get these people, the, the finance capitalists, the big investors, the banks, the Goldman Sachs of the world, to invest in what became popularly known as Main Street, right? Wall Street, Main Street, Wall Street, Main Street, right? And that would be to put lots and lots of money into the United States economy, bring people back to work, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and stimulate the economy. And what they said was the money is not going to be forthcoming if these environmental regulations are applied. And so what you had was you had the withholding of funds on the basis that we will only invest these funds if environmental regulations are compromised. And um, it worked perfectly well. What the government, what the government did is they, they used a decision-making process on that particular on, that, on the stimulus bill in which the companies that they were choosing to stimulate or were, were applying for stimulus money would be uh, have a question posed to them, which is that would applying environmental regulations to your, to your investment, to your projects, would that compromise your profitability? And if it would compromise your profitability, then we will waive the environmental regulations. So they transferred the decision about the application of environmental regulations to the, to the investors and said to them, okay, if you say you're not gonna invest because it's not profitable enough, uh, then we'll waive the environmental regulations. And that is essentially what was done, and it added up to 97% of the investment capital. So this is what this is what we think is a, a kind of template for understanding why Obama was never never able, even when he had the authority to do so, right? He was never able to actually implement the progressive reforms or progressive projects that we all expected him to be advocating for. Um, so that, that's kind of the, 
bringing together this capital strike idea with the question of what happened to to Obama, right? Now, of course, that doesn't answer the question of whether Obama was really faking it when he uh, posed himself as a progressive candidate. He may well have never had any intention to do progressive these progressive things. But whether or not he did is really not so important as asking what were those who controlled the investment capital and in that critical situation controlled what ended up being $3 trillion worth of investment capital that, um, that Wall Street had by the end of the Obama administration, $3 trillion of investment capital, which they kept withholding and saying, we're not going to put this into the American economy until and unless the following reforms are done. And of course, what they were asking for were not the progressive reforms that everybody was looking for. So Obama was just faced over and over and over again with the same dilemma. Yeah, jumping right off of that, um, to turn to another example you look at uh, is the Affordable Care Act, which started with uh, somewhat ambitious aims, but throughout the legislative process of design and implementation was slowly watered down in various ways that left something of a mixed bag at the end. So can you give us a sense of the process here and how a radical and relatively popular piece of legislation was turned into something that left the healthcare industry relatively unscathed? Mm-hmm. Healthcare is one of these sectors where uh, a robust progressive agenda had massive public support. Um, there's recently been a number of polls in the United States during the, the COVID-19 pandemic showing that um, large, uh, large majority of the population favors a single-payer system or a Medicare-for-all system, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, most of the public favors the creation of a universal health care system in this country. Uh, but that's not something new. That degree of popular support has existed for decades Um, And it was true on the eve of Obama's inauguration in 2008-2009. If we look at public opinion polls from the time, and we cite some of them in the book, um, on the question of universal health care, 77% of respondents in one poll from fall of 2008, uh, even 57% of people who plan to vote Republican, said that the government should be responsible for ensuring Healthcare as a right of all people in the country. Um, so there was enormous popular support behind the idea of universal access to healthcare, um, government uh, action to ensure that access, and a host of other measures that would involve government regulating and restraining the private healthcare industries. We're talking about the pharmaceutical companies, the insurers the medical device companies, all of the providers, and so on. So that idea of strong government regulation and government assurance of universal health care access had very strong support from the public. Now, despite that, despite that overwhelming popular mandate that Obama enjoyed when he entered office, uh, when he when he started down the road of healthcare reform, what he did was to invite all of the stakeholders, as they were called, to the table to try to find a consensus. And a consensus was a term that was used at the time. Uh, what consensus can all of the relevant stakeholders find with regard to healthcare reform? 
So think about for a second what that actually meant. It meant bringing to the table all of the industries in the healthcare sector that were most responsible for the problems that healthcare reform was supposed to correct. Um, and bringing them together with uh, some token representatives of patients and, and workers and so on. Um, now that itself is a recipe for disaster. Uh, you can't bring uh, the, the culprits together with uh, the victims to try to find a solution. Any solution that you find is going to be, um, is going to be a false one. It's going to be an unstable um, uh, and false solution. Now, uh, as a result of that process that the Obama administration uh, embarked upon and that Congress, Democrats in Congress embarked upon, um, we saw a couple of things happen. One was that Medicare for All or anything similar to it was immediately taken off the table as an option. It was never seriously considered by the uh, congressional committees or, or the White House. Um, socialized medicine, which would have gone even beyond Medicare for All to something like, you know, say the National Health Service in Britain, uh, that was, of course, uh, uh, taken off the table entirely. Um, and even beyond that, even a robust public option, a public health care program that would compete with private insurance, that itself was never even seriously considered uh, because the, the prospect of a public program competing with these uh, parasitic uh, for-profit insurers and pharmaceuticals and healthcare providers uh, was considered unacceptable uh, to some of those powerful stakeholders that were at the table. So what we got with uh, the Affordable Care Act was what was sometimes called the three-legged stool, the three components that comprised this legislation. One was that, uh, as most people probably know, uh, the legislation uh, introduced a prohibition on insurance companies uh, barring people from coverage based on their pre-existing conditions. So that was one thing, and that was, a, of course, a very good element of the legislation. Um, and uh, the other two legs of the stool, though, were meant to uh, compensate the the healthcare uh, the the health insurers uh, for that change, because obviously the insurance companies didn't like having to cover all those people with pre-existing conditions. So the government sweetened the deal. Uh, they said, "You cover people with pre-existing conditions, and we will ensure that uh, uh, patients uh, get subsidies to purchase private insurance." subsidies from the government to purchase private insurers, insurance, uh, and will also mandate that everyone in the country needs to purchase uh, insurance. So the subsidies and the individual mandate were the other two legs in that stool. So those three components went together and that they were central to um, the, the formula of the Affordable Care Act. Um, and uh, the purpose was to compensate the sectors, the healthcare sectors that would uh, find uh, certain aspects of the legislation distasteful. So in order to uh, force them to cover people with pre-existing conditions, they had to have the individual mandate and had to have the subsidies uh, from the government. Now, these basics, this basic formula was all determined before the congressional debate even began, before the legislation even went onto the floor of Congress for debate. This basic recipe was already prede predetermined behind closed doors and through negotiations with the industries that would be affected. Now, as a result of all this, 
uh, as we know, we didn't even get a robust public option, let alone Medicare for all, which is you know, really the only uh, solution to uh, cover everyone. And it's also the only solution to achieve one of the key stated goals of the Affordable Care Act, which was cost containment. Uh, we in this country have had a longstanding crisis of health care spending. Um, the health care costs in this country uh, increase on an annual basis at a rate far higher than the average rate of inflation in the, in the economy. Uh, if we look at figures from 2018, and these are the most recent that I've found, uh, health care spending rose 4.6%. Uh, and this is, after, this is long after the full implementation of the Affordable Care Act. Um, so that's far above the standard rate of inflation. Uh, we still spend 18% of U.S. GDP on the healthcare sector, um, over $11,000 a year per person uh, is, spe on, is spent on healthcare. So one of the central stated goals of, of uh, the Affordable Care Act, which was cost containment, uh, and which was urgently necessary to, uh, to bring healthcare spending under control um, uh, was made effectively impossible because from the get-go, the uh, congressional officials and the White House had decided that they're going to do everything they need to do to get the healthcare industry stakeholders on board, to get the pharmaceutical companies, the insurers, and so on, on board in support of this legislation. So what that meant was that they were, they were making a commitment to preserving and, in fact, enhancing the profitability of these private for-profit for uh, health care companies. And that, uh, unfortunately, doomed the progressive goals of the legislation. So as a result, we can see, you know, a, a decade after Obamacare was uh, passed, um, is that, yes, it did some good things. There were some important progressive reforms there, the you know, expansion of, uh, of public health care um, and um, the, the uh, uh, prohibition on, um, on excluding people based on their pre-existing medical conditions. Those were obviously good things, but we see that those things were wrapped up in, in a very toxic uh, policy package that was dedicated to preserving the profits of uh, the industries that were the problem. So rather than taking on those industries, uh, the Obama administration and the Democrats in Congress uh, were committed to accommodating them. Now, why was this the case? And to bring it back to our, our overarching argument about U.S. politics, this was the result not just of the campaign donations that the healthcare industries made, but also the result of the fact that the healthcare corporations controlled um, uh, so much of the economy, and the fact that the broader corporate world um, uh, came out in opposition to Medicare for all. So, if you look at the healthcare sector, it is, as I said, eighteen percent of U.S. GDP. So this. Uh, enormous control um, that the healthcare industries have over the economy uh, is a large part of the reason uh, why we got the result that we did and why the Obama administration felt compelled from the very beginning to invite all of those healthcare industry stakeholders to the table. If I could, if I could add just one small point to that. Yeah, go the, ahead. Uh, the healthcare industry was and still is, is in a in pretty bad shape 
and it owes an awful lot of money to Wall Street. And um, and what that means is is that when you contemplate a regulatory regime that the Obamacare was supposed to be, that might really limit the uh, the uh, profitability of the healthcare industry or pharma or any of the various components of it. You are also talking about putting at risk the investments of Wall Street. So that in the midst of this tremendous true recession, you know, the biggest recession since the, since the, uh, I guess we've got a bigger one now, but um, at that point it was the biggest recession since the depression. Uh, Wall Street was very actively and very comfortably announcing that their investments in these shaky healthcare companies and healthcare industry was was at risk. And so they were saying, well, we're, we're not really in favor of this. And, and uh, we don't know whether we're going to continue to invest in the healthcare industry if uh, if you don't allow us to extract the profits that we're accustomed to extracting from these high interest loans that have they had already given. So you, it, it, it was not just the healthcare industry wielding its own power. It was also Wall Street wielding its own power. And then on the other side of this, the companies that you would expect to want a really robust Obamacare that would relieve them of their incredible healthcare costs right, were rendered silent by the fact that their source of investment was also being, uh, the Wall Street was also necessary for the auto industry, for example. So the auto industry could, could have, might have, would have under other circumstances, perhaps lined up in favor of a really robust, um, uh, regulation of the healthcare industry because it would regulate the costs that they themselves were experiencing, right? They were mute on this. They would they did not take a position on that. And so you have this whole equation in which the way the, the linkages are made among the corporations also determines what position they have towards a particular policy. Another part of Obama's legacy you analyze is Wall Street reform, particularly the Dodd-Frank Act. So again, reform here was very popular in the wake of the 2008 fiscal crisis, and part of Obama's electoral success came from a somewhat populist demand that Wall Street be regulated and held accountable. And yet the resulting legislation left the underlying structures relatively intact. So can you tell us a bit about what happened here? Uh, I, I think that this is a, a, a very good um, crystalline example of the fact that most of the po- political analyses, of po- let's call it policy analysis, tends to focus its attention on the uh, legislative process. And of course, the legislative process is very, very important, as we just saw in our discussion of uh, the healthcare, when the legislative process basically excised from from the process any of the proposals that might have really seriously regulated the healthcare industry in a way that might have controlled, for example, the cost of healthcare in the United States. Um, But in the case of Dodd-Frank, the really interesting part 
the really compromising part of the legislation took place after the legislation was completed. People don't uh, people don't really uh, focus their attention on the fact that there's really three links in uh, the policy chain. The first link is what gets proposed, right? And I, th I think that what the recession of 2008 did it, and the protests that had taken place even before that did was together brought to the fore, put on the agenda, brought it into the political the political process, the idea that there should be serious regulation of Wall Street and uh, investment capital in general, and that there were many, many aspects of that regulation that needed to be attended to, all of which would constrain, very seriously constrain, uh, the profitability of uh, investment capital. Because what you had was this unlimited seeking of profits, speculative profits mainly, which resulted in very, very high standards of profitability and then required that exploitative relationships be created. And then the big bubble that was created uh, through the derivatives, uh, which burst in 2008 and caused the crisis. So there was a lot of energy and a lot of talk about serious regulatory legislation that really inhibited the behavior of Wall Street and investment capital more generally. So when the legislation came around, there was very serious regulation, regulatory, regulatory um, uh, uh, aspects to that legislation that took place. Now there was a lot that there was a lot that was given up by the same logic that we've been talking about all along, which is the threat that the disinvestment from the American economy that caused the recession would not be revive unless certain kinds of policies were allowed to continue, certainly influenced the whole way in which Dodd-Frank was created. But nevertheless, there was a lot of regulatory uh, aspects to this. In fact, I think, I think we found a count of something like 467 different regulatory aspects to this that would specifically inhibit the investment behavior of finance capital. So you got a lot a lot of, of regulation going on there. But when you enact regulation, the act of the legislation only writes the law. It doesn't implement the law. And you have a very, very elaborate and complicated implementation process for almost any law that's complex. And that takes place within the executive branch and the executive branch has to make decisions about how they are going to implement the law. Now we've already seen from before that when they implemented this law, they decided to waive all of the, basically all of the environmental conditions that were put into the regulation um, in the Stimulus Act. And the same thing is going to happen with Dodd-Frank. They're going to have all this regulation and they're going to sit down and figure out exactly how they're going to implement. Now, we've already talked about the sort of complex of ways in which the, uh, 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 the corporate world 
uh, intervenes in the legislative policy process, right? And they um, certainly are going to make sure that they get as many people elected to Congress or the presidency who support policies that are favorable to them. And the different corporations are constantly trying to do this in all the elections. And then there's the whole lobbying operation, which makes sure that they get a hearing. And then there's a, another operation in which you have the appointments to the various executive branch and to the advisory committees and the, um, the investigative committees of Congress, where all the professionals are, are, are uh, inhabit uh, all these bureaucracies. Who's going to have those professional positions? And there's a lot of jockeying for position and people get appointed. And you look at the Obama administration in particular, right? And when you have somebody like Simons, who was the architect of deregulation in the 1990s, gets appointed as the top, uh, as a top economic adv uh, administrator in the Trump, in the Obama administration, what, what you end up recognizing is, is that when this implementation is going to take place, right, and you put in charge somebody who has a long record of not just sympathy, but intense loyalty to, to uh, finance capital, Goldman Sachs in particular in his case, uh, uh, you, you can expect that the interpretation of how to implement the law will take on a, a certain complexion. So what you have is you have a numerous agencies, but for Dodd-Frank, there were four key agencies that really had to decide what the various regulatory decisions were going to be, right? And in fact, three of them were led by, uh, I was going to use the word ironclad, but perhaps that's a little bit too strong, but real loyalist finance capital. And now there's been a, process over the last 30 years in which uh, the head of, regulator, of regulatory uh, agencies and, and uh, um, positions are no longer career professionals in the government with a, a strong commitment to government regulation, but rather they're appointees who are moving in and out of government and have loyalties to the various agencies, to the various corporations and and sectors, industrial and, and financial sectors, that they are appointed to regulate. So you end up populating these regulatory positions with people very sympathetic to the uh, interests of the, of the companies that they're expected to regulate. So it should be expected that when the implementation took place, as it took place and the decisions were made, that the decisions would be made with the health and welfare of the regulated agencies uh, who were going to be uh, regulated. When you have something like Dodd-Frank, which is intended, designed, supposed to limit the, the freedom of these companies, to seriously regulate them, and in particular, to put controls on their profitability, right? And you populate these agencies with people who are loyal to the profitability of these companies. You can imagine that it might be a little bit difficult to get serious regulation through, and this is precisely what happened. 
because what they the actual procedure was is that these regulatory rules are created through a negotiation process with the regulated companies. So now you have somebody on one side who's out to regulate them, but is very sympathetic to their point of view. On the other side, you have the companies themselves. So you have this process just the same as with the um, environmental aspects of the uh, rescue uh, bills, them going to the uh, companies and saying, if we put a limit on your profitability here of uh, the interest rates you can charge, or uh, we put a limit on the amount of money you can loan and how much equity you have to retain, uh, uh, what, where, where is the point of no return? Where does this make it an unprofitable investment for you? Uh, and then the companies return. They say, well, look, we're just not going to invest in that area and we're going to lose a lot of money and there's going to be a financial crisis if you do this. What you have to do is that. So they negotiate a settlement. And as that negotiation took place, what happened was is that most of the regulatory uh, elements that had real bite to them that really might have made a difference in terms of, for example, running a risk that derivatives would once again cause another crash, uh, they were compromised over and over and over again. And that's one of the things we document in the book is the number, the sheer number of compromises that were made and always under this overarching threat where the companies are saying, yes, in fact, if you do that, we're not going to invest. We're not going to invest. One of the great ironies is, is that uh, when regulation of derivatives was considered, they actually, the, the, the representatives of business said, look, if you, if you regulate the derivatives in the way you're contemplating, we will, we will just take all the derivative business and move it to England which might be a great thing for the health of the American economy, but it wouldn't be a great thing for the health of the Wall Street firms. So, um, and they compromised on that. And, you know, all the, all the analysts are saying, we're still in exactly the same compromised position towards derivatives that we were, that actually brought on the, uh, uh, the, uh, the crash. Right. So moving along, one thing we already talked about, but I want to revisit real quick is uh, environmental legislation, which has somewhat different dynamics here, since it often doesn't feel as urgent. Um, at least during the Obama administration, things are maybe changing a bit now. But um, compared to healthcare financial reform, political pressure is sometimes a little more lax. Uh, but still, environmental regulation overall remains generally very popular, and yet restricting pollution and carbon emissions still remain largely out of Obama's reach. So what happened that prevented the Obama administration from tackling climate change more thoroughly? So environment is another uh, realm where there was broad public support for major progressive reform when Obama took office uh, in 2009. Uh, if we look at polls from the fall of 2008, just before the election, uh, we see that 78% of the U.S. public favored an international treaty 
to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So that's much stronger than something like the Paris Climate Accord, uh, because a treaty, of course, would be binding. Uh, 66% favored government regulations that would force utilities to use more clean energy sources. So we, we quote those uh, polls in the book. Um, now, I think you're, you're right, Stephen, that the urgency that the public felt around climate change uh, was not necessarily as uh, high as with financial reform or healthcare reform. Uh, but nonetheless, there was broad public support for uh, environmental protections designed to rein in the power of the polluters and protect consumers and workers and the environment. Now, nonetheless, uh, what we got uh, with Obama uh, was uh, not a single major piece of environmental reform legislation, at least not anything progressive, not anything that would actually uh, control or restrict the power uh, and the profits of the polluting industries. Um, Obama really didn't prioritize environmental reform during his first term, um, but there were a number of important uh, legislative bills that circulated in the House and the Senate. And uh, what we see with most of those bills, at least the ones that got um, some major traction and did stand a chance of passing, uh, is that the reforms that they offered were very tepid and very corporate friendly, very dedicated to preserving the profitability of the polluters themselves and their ability to make decisions about where they were going to invest and how much they were going to pollute. So the uh, the sponsors of that legislation in the House, you had you know people like Waxman and Markey, and then in the Senate you had Kerry and uh, Lindsey Graham and Joe Lieberman um, as sponsors of these major bills, and they made repeated compromises with the polluting industries themselves to do anything they could to try to uh, advance these bills out of committee and then um, through a full vote of the House and the Senate. So they. They drastically reduced the emission reduction targets um, that scientists were calling for uh, almost unanimously. So those targets themselves were drastically scaled back over what the science called for. Um, they, you know, they did a lot of other things. I won't go into the details here for sake of time. Um, but even with all of those pro-industry compromises that were made uh, by the congressional sponsors and uh, with the blessing of the Oval Office, um, the legislation still failed. Um, the only one of those bills that actually passed by a razor-thin margin was the Waxman-Markey bill in the House, uh, but the Senate never passed anything uh, comparable. Now, why was this the case? Why, despite this uh, strong public mandate and electoral mandate that Obama had for environmental reform when he came into office, why was that squandered? Why did uh, policy effectively continue as as it had for so many years. Um, here, I think it's especially um, it's especially uh, interesting here that uh, Obama and most of the Democratic Party do not rely very heavily on uh, fossil fuel industry campaign donations. Uh, Obama himself was not. Uh, didn't receive uh, a lot of money from um, the fossil fuel industries directly uh, in, in either of his presidential elections. And that's largely true of the Democratic Party as a whole. The fossil fuel money goes uh, disproportionately to Republicans, and that's been true for um, the last several decades. Um, 
so it really wasn't the threat of um, withholding campaign money or the threat of lobbying um, that uh, got the polluters what they wanted from the administration in Congress. It was more the threat of disinvestment from the, from the economy. Uh, and they said exactly what Michael was talking about for the case of financial reform. They, the polluters said that uh, you slap these regulations on us, force us to reduce our emissions, we're going to take our capital elsewhere. We're going to uh, relocate factories overseas. Uh, Wall Street's going to send its money uh, overseas where it can be more profitably invested. So this was the threat of a capital strike once again that was now being used to stave off the threat of uh, major progressive environmental reform. Um, now, Al Gore, uh, who was a big uh, climate activist, uh, advocate, uh, at least after he left um, the vice presidential position in 2000, uh, he, in the aftermath of the defeat of this legislation in the Senate in 2010, uh, he was uh, reflecting on why the legislation hadn't gone anywhere. And he, you know, he said something that was, uh, I think, a really apt description of the U.S. political uh, process more generally. He said, it's virtually impossible for participants in the current political system to enact any significant change without first seeking and gaining the permission from the largest commercial interests who are most affected by the proposed change. So in essence, uh, if elected politicians and the regulator regulators that they want to appoint, uh, if they want to do something, uh, even if the changes that they are uh, trying to introduce are broadly supported by the public, uh, they, they really can't do it unless they have the consent of the industries that would be affected. And Gore went on to say that it was the possibility of an economic downturn uh, that uh, was, was the operative factor there, that uh, the uh, holders of investment capital essentially said, um, we're going to take our money elsewhere, we're going to send it off overseas uh, if uh, you go forward with go forward with this legislation. Um, so that's going to you know, increase unemployment. It's going to restrict the availability of, of credit in the U.S. economy. Um, and and that, threat was, that, that threat was very powerful. Now, I think that this example of failed environmental reform under Obama holds some important lessons for today um, when we think about the, the Biden administration. And the, one of the reasons that we argue why uh, the Obama administration failed to uh, achieve any sort of robust progressive uh, environmental reform uh, was, uh, with some partial exceptions, uh, was the lack of a really large and disruptive social movement focused on uh, confronting the polluters themselves and confronting uh, the sources of capital for those polluters. Um, there, there was an environmental movement under Obama, but for the most part, it was focused on lobbying. It was focused on uh, getting politicians elected or sometimes protesting the politicians if they, they weren't doing the right thing. Um, but it's really only in the last decade since the failure of that climate legislation uh, in Obama's first years that we've seen the growth of a major environmental movement in the United States that is focused not so much on the politicians, but on uh, the fossil fuel companies themselves, and more importantly, on the investors in those fossil fuel companies. And we've seen that this movement over the past decade has started to make some real headway, finally. 
Uh, Michael and I uh, have recently been working on a piece with uh, one of our colleagues, Richard Lockman, uh, that should be coming out soon in uh, Tom Dispatch, uh, the Tom Dispatch website, um, analyzing uh, the ways that the environmental movement has been able to achieve um, growing political leverage, even under Trump, even under a president who is so dedicated uh, to um, to increasing the power and the profits of the of the big fossil fuel companies. And what we argue in that piece is that uh, the movement um, has, uh, through all of its protests against pipelines and its its divestment movement targeting the the fossil fuel companies. Uh, its lawsuits against um, the fossil fuel companies and the pipelines and the power plants and so on um, has introduced this this new uncertainty into uh, the fossil fuel investment market that has made Wall Street, that has made the investors increasingly hesitant to uh, put their money into these uh, fossil fuel pipeline projects and you know the coal and the gas fired power plants. Um, the drilling and extraction projects. Uh, we see this uh, just in the last couple of weeks uh, with the conflict over the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Um, and what had happened there is that the most of the biggest banks in the United States had said that they're not going to invest uh, in oil drilling in, in the Arctic Refuge. Um, so the Trump administration came back and said, well, we're going to force you using this agency called the Office of the Comptroller, the currency, uh, we're going to force the banks to invest in the Arctic Refuge oil drilling projects. Uh, so this is a remarkable episode just from the last few weeks here. We're talking after the November 2020 election. Um, and But it, but it's a, a recognition of the crisis that the, the fossil fuels industry uh, was facing, that the crisis came from the fact that these banks, so many banks and investors are increasingly refusing to invest in the sector, uh, partly because of the, the larger economic uh, downturn, the drop in oil demand and so on, uh, which is you know partly a reflection of uh, the COVID pandemic, uh, but also predated the pandemic. Um, but the, the, the reticence of the investors is also due to the actions of the movement, the way that the movement has been able to uh, increase the risk and uncertainty associated with these fossil fuel projects uh, by um, introducing the possibility, raising the likelihood uh, that a given project like the Dakota Access Pipeline or the Keystone XL Pipeline or you know uh, scores and hundreds of other projects uh, the movement has been able to increase the likelihood or the threat that any capital that Wall Street commits to these projects uh, is going to, uh, isn't going to pay off. So they're going to lose those investments uh, because the projects are not going to be able to go through because, you know, judges might step in and, and halt the projects or the protests might delay the projects themselves for years and years. Uh, so we saw like in the case of the Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, even though the the pipeline was eventually built. It was delayed for a long time, and those delays impose real costs on the industry. So uh, this is, you know, going beyond the Obama era. But I think it's it's really relevant to this case of how do we actually achieve environmental reform uh, in a meaningful way? And I think that the uh, one of the ways to uh, one of the lessons to take from the Obama era in this regard uh, was that we really didn't have a large and disruptive 
um, climate movement or environmental movement um, that could have uh, that 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 targeted the um, the industry uh, itself, uh, and we are increasingly seeing that uh, that kind of movement in the last few years, which I think is a very promising sign. To move right along, then, so for good and ill, Donald Trump is this very kind of unique political figure, and for a lot of people, he seems to break a lot of the rules that have defined American politics for some time. But you argue that he is largely held accountable to the same dynamics that have tethered Obama. And this has led to some very mixed results in terms of him being able to fulfill many of his campaign promises. So can you tell us a bit about the Trump presidency and the way some of these political dynamics we've been developing have affected what he's been able to accomplish? Yeah, well, Trump, of course, campaigned on this image of himself as this maverick uh, you know, non-traditional politician who's going to uh, come in and, uh, you know, tear things up and, um, he, you know, has no regard for the, the standard bureaucratic politics that, that so much of the U.S. public hates. Um, and, you know, remarkably, he's actually been able to maintain that image that he has so carefully cultivated. Uh, and, you know, millions of people still buy into that image of Trump, you know, both on the right uh, and on the left, on the left, you know, we tend to see Trump as, you know, a, erratic and narcissistic uh, and, uh, you know, just somehow operating outside of the normal constraints of U.S. politics. Um, but uh, one of the arguments that we make in the book about the Trump administration is that he's been really limited, in fact, in his power to defy the wishes of corporations and other institutions like the military. Um, now, Trump, of course, hasn't wanted uh, to defy corporate power uh, on many occasions. He's been trying to do the, the opposite uh, for most of his term. That's, um, you know, the general thrust of his policy is to, uh, you know, stuff more money in their pockets and give them even more power and deregulate them even further. Uh, but there have been some interesting initiatives uh, that Trump has been, uh, put forward that have stepped on the toes of certain corporate sectors and advantaged certain corporate sectors over others. So I'll give you just one example. Uh, a couple of years ago in 2018, he made a big push to expand offshore oil drilling, to virtually eliminate all of the uh, limitations on oil drilling off the U.S. coasts. Now, so this was in 2018, and uh, what he found was that he, he wasn't able to do it. Um, and he wasn't able to do it uh, in particular because of resistance from other corporate sectors. There was a big uh, mobilization of, of um, opposition from the tourist industry in places like Florida, uh, the seafood industry all along the, uh, especially the southeast coast and eastern coast uh, of the U.S. Um, it, so there was this, this very strong uh, corporate resistance coming from the non-fossil fuel sectors uh, who feared that their business interests and profitability were going to be hurt uh, if there were oil rigs uh, all along the, the uh, coasts uh, that would you know, potentially be spilling uh, catastrophic quantities of oil uh, into the ocean uh, in the way that you know, BP did uh, in the Deepwater Horizon disaster of 2010. Um, so that 
opposition from other corporate sectors effectively thwarted Trump's plan in that instance. So it's a very interesting example of how Trump, despite his personality, uh, has been subject to many of these same constraints that uh, uh, any other politician would be. And if we look at Trump's legislative record, he's been able to do very little in the realm of legislative reform since he came into office four years ago. The only major legislative victory that he's achieved uh, was the 2017 uh, tax cut bill. Uh, and he was able to do that basically because it was, uh, you know, it was something that unified the 1%. Uh, the 1%, despite their varying interests, could all agree that uh, massive tax cuts for corporations and the rich uh, were a good thing. Um, But apart from that, Trump really hasn't had any major legislative success. Most of his other big changes have come through executive action, you know, scrapping environmental regulations uh, and, and things like that, that he's been able to do using the power of the executive branch. Um, now, I think that uh, one lesson that we can take from is is that uh, the resistance uh, to aspects of the Trump agenda um, provides openings, potential openings, uh, for social movements to um, exert political pressure. Um, there's openings that are created that or that social movements themselves can create uh, when there are these uh, differing interests uh, among different corporate stakeholders. Okay. If I could add just a little bit to that. Go ahead. I think that the case of the offshore uh, oil oil drilling is part of a larger pattern that really illustrates exactly the kinds of limitations that Trump faces, uh, has faced, and and continues to face for the last couple of months. Because... One of the things that didn't happen when he wanted to release offshore drilling uh, and and start uh, start licensing it again is that the big hydrocarbon companies did not jump up and down and demand uh, uh, you know come forward and start calling for uh, this to continue and put their pressure on the side of opening it up. This is a reflection of this larger pattern that we already we're already uh, we already talked about with regard to uh, the Arctic refuge um, already at that point when he was trying to open this up the whole viability financial viability of these very hard to access oil company uh, oil uh, oil facilities was already being called into question. You know, we'd had a previous uh, crisis in the Gulf over this, and uh, there was a lot of uh, building pressure on the side against. And there was also the the fracking boom had resulted in a big drop in the, in the price of oil, which made this kind of uh, development unprofitable. And so, there, so when you look at the equation of forces, you've got what might under some circumstances be a relatively weak um, uh, industry, the, uh, uh, the, the tourist industry on one side, but you didn't have this big behemoth, the hydrocarbon companies pushing, pushing, pushing for it. And I think that that, that kind of an equation is a very important kind of uh, logic to look at in a lot of the settings where 
of course, seeing it all over again in the case of the Arctic Refuge, uh, only now with the amplified problems for, for Trump. And I think it's very interesting that in this final logic, just today, I think, or yesterday in the New York Times, they reported that the Trump administration had taken yet another uh, another move to try to force the opening of the Arctic Refuge by uh, by opening it up for bids and seeing if they can get some companies to bid. But even the coverage there said and the major companies are probably not going to bid for it. So he, his last ditch effort there is not going to work. And I think that a good contrast to that is all of the initiatives they've taken on the southern border to exclude uh, exclude <clears throat> uh, exclude immigrants and, and refugees, as it turns out, because most of the most of the people appearing there are refugees, and they've been breaking all these laws in order to stop the flow of Im uh, immigrants through the border, right? And uh, that they, they've been able to get away with that. You've been able to get away with that, despite the fact that it's clearly illegal. So the judiciary should have been the check and balance on it, right? Uh, the 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 legislature the legislature that has been passed, the policies that have been passed, are all against the policies that they are initiated. You, they're breaking the the law in in doing all these policies, and there's no internal to the government check on it. So on the one side, he's trying to open up, he's trying to open up the uh, Arctic refuge. And he's not going to get away with it because the combination of the movement and the movement's pressure on the corporations is going to stop him there. The corporations are not going to cooperate. And on the southern border, he's getting away with it because the movement is not, has not found a way to stop it, right? And there's no, and there's, there's no corporations that might stop it. So you, you see that the kinds of policies that really reactionary policies that he can get away with are precisely those that don't cross cross against the corporations hurt uh, hurt a major corporate uh entity so he gets into office he's supposed to be anti-corporate and he's also supposed to be you know anti any all people of color his policies attacking people of color are really wreaking havoc but the policies where he is actually trying to do corporate things, they are being modulated, reversed, or facilitated by whether the corporation supported. Turning to the positive part of your book, you develop, uh, compared to what you've been deconstructing, a very different understanding of political change. You quote John Dewey, who said that politicians are the shadow cast on society. In right, quote, targeting the shadow will not bring real change. It makes more sense to target the substance of business and state institutions. So before looking at some of the specific examples you bring up, can you give us a basic sense of your theoretical orientation here? Uh, yes, uh, I, I think that it's basically the summary of what we've said before. I mean, a part of the the... The shape of government policy, how is it determined? How does the behavior of government actually get regulated and organized? And we've got the legislative process and we've talked about how 
there's so much influence on the legislative process. And then even before that, there's uh, even after that's all done, and if you win some kind of, uh, by shaping the legislative process, you might get some legislation that looks pretty good. You can't be sure it will be enforced because the implementation process is once again influenced by this corporate behemoth that's sitting there with control of investment capital, the ability to make the economy run or not run, and to, uh, to threaten the economy with anything that might dampen their interest. So that what, what we're looking at government behavior is ultimately limited, constrained, and channeled by the interest and the activism of the corporate world. So if we look at it that way, if we, if we look at it that way, that's what gives life to that, uh, to, to that quote, uh, that, that image of the politicians as the shadow, as the shadow cast by corporations, because their behavior is so effectively shaped in all these different ways by the, the power of the corporations over the process. So what, what's, av what's available to us as a way of allowing, let's say, allowing the government to behave in a different way or coercing the government to behave in a different way. The prerequisite for it is to defang, destabilize, dis, disin, stop the corporations from proactively channeling it in the directions they need. So from a, the point of view of, and we've seen in a lot of the examples we've talked about, in the times when corporations had no interest in it, then the government could go ahead and do something. Now, unfortunately, on the southern, on the on the southern border, that is exactly what's happened. We've gotten these terrible policies out of a terrible government because there was no veto against it. There was no countervailing power, right? So, looked at it in another way, if we can get the 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 corporate world to stop pushing the government around, then the government could enact reasonable legislation. So that means that when the, there's a big corporate stake in some policy, there has to be, find a way for those corporations not to use their power to enact something that frustrates some useful progressive reform. And so what that means is that in general, the target has to be the institutional powers, the institutional adversary to the policy. So just to use a more general example, in the, in the, in the, in the regulation, in the Dodd-Frank regulation, the way that it could have been different would have been if the corporations were not so energetically fighting against regulation. If they were willing to accept regulation for some reason or another, then the Dodd-Frank Act might have been enacted as it was and then in enforced in a way that actually did regulate them. That's the overarching logic that we're working with here. What we, when we look through history, we find that that has in fact occurred that there have been times when corporations have backed off, 
have accepted regular regulation constraint and frustration of their own goals because they saw that option as the lesser of evils as less drastic less dangerous less harmful to their interests than what might happen if the government did not and that's the general principle that we see as the logic behind the progressive reforms that we can find sprinkled through and sometimes very 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 major reforms during the through the history of the united states and right up to the current time Turning to the 1930s, you look at a couple points in the book at the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, also known as the Wagner Act, a very important piece of labor legislation that was initially very unpopular in both the congressional and executive branches of government, although there was a slow and steady change of opinion on it that helped push it through. Can you tell us a bit about this legislation and how pressure was applied to get it through the legislative system? Uh, yeah, I, I think that the way to tell this story is to um, start with the election of Roosevelt uh, in 1932 in this landslide. We all hoped for a similar landslide this time, but we didn't get it. Um, but Roosevelt rode into, uh, rode into the White House and enunciated for the first time, actually, the idea of the 100 days, which has been uh, pretty much continued ever since. And he said, I'm going to put through this whole whole raft of legislation that's going to really start us on the road to recovery. Um, He did put through a whole raft of legislation, including legislation that made labor unions legal in the United States. And announced the the posture of the federal government to be one of protecting labor rights and protecting the rights of labor to unionization and to enforcing uh, and to enforcing it. And the part of the first hundred days had a very robust Labor Protection Act that was later declared unconstitutional, but I think very importantly, it was not declared unconstitutional for a couple of years, and it was not enforced in any way, shape, or form uh, during the uh, period before that, even though this was, in 1932, one of the periods of most intense labor organizing. So you had a law on the books. The government did not really try to enforce it in any way, shape, or form, and then it was declared unconstitutional. Um, four, four years later, in 1936, uh, they passed the what was called the Wagner Act because it was the major advocate for it was the Senator, Senator Wagner from New York, uh, and um, and they established the National Labor Relations Board, which we still have, and that act also was enacted um, as part of uh, the residue of a landslide electoral victory in 1936 and um and and it also had no effect immediately in fact the national labor relations act 
uh, board really didn't start to get active until about two or three or four years later, right? What happened, it looked like, if you were writing the history as it came about, you would wonder, you were really waiting and thinking, well, the Supreme Court is going to declare it unconstitutional again. Uh, and, uh, and in the meantime, the government isn't going to do anything. And the government wasn't doing anything. They weren't trying to seize the moment. And, and in 1936, there was a tremendous efflorescence of, of unionization. And what really happened here was, is that the union movement got itself together uh, and it began taking on the largest corporations in the United States, most notably GM and the auto industry more generally, and started defeating them. Winning strikes straight ahead without any government help. The, the, uh, the, the legislation is on the books and they're not enforcing it. They're not doing anything. There's no election to see who's going to be the uh, uh, the representative here or anything, right? What what they did was they won elections, and and the story really needs to be told a little in a little more detail for it to become become credible. But a, a few years later, the corporations themselves, the corporations themselves, started using the Labor Relations Act because they found that it was the lesser of evils to recognize unions and actually negotiate with them and actually give concessions to unions without a strike, without really being pushed against the wall, was the less expensive, the less destructive of their profits and of their power than enduring the strikes that were going to, that were inevitably going to hit them if they did not do so. And so what you actually ended up with was that the fight of the corporations to defeat, either through getting them uh, declared unconstitutional or by simply not obeying the, the law, simply refusing to negotiate, as they have done with so many other laws that we, we see all the time, right? Um, they started using the law because they preferred an orderly recognition and, and uh, negotiation process to the really disruptive strikes that they were experiencing during that period. And so, um, so it's a very interesting example of social movements actually getting a law that otherwise would not have been enforced, enforced because it was the lesser of the evils. So this is a, a more, this is a good example of that more general principle that, that we try to enunciate in the book is that if you go after the corporations, if you go after the large institutions that are the actual adversaries to the policies, whatever the policy is, is that it's a cor corporate or institutional adversaries, you have to weaken them, you have to make them feel like the policy is less, is less damaging than the fight we're going to have to have over it. Moving forward and turning to the civil rights movement, you look at Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, where activists such as Martin Luther King emphasized forcing local businesses and other persons to the bargaining table. So what were the targets of the activists in this instance, and how did they apply pressure in such a way 
is to force them to that bargaining table. Well, that, that's, this is one of the great stories of American history, really. Um, it, 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 might be, uh, uh, it might be worth starting a little earlier. There was a tremendously large social movement in Albany, Georgia, uh, a couple of years earlier. And um, they were demanding the right to vote and, uh, and integration. And their target was the local, the local political establishment. And we had sit-ins and demonstrations and protests at the local government, uh, at the state government, but mostly at the local government, demanding that uh, integration take place, you know, that the, that the government oversee integration of public facilities, et cetera, et cetera. And they had huge movement, and, and you know, it's not well known, but Martin Luther King was also arrested in, in Albany, Georgia. Uh, and the movement was not only defeat, uh, not only failed, but they actually were prosecuted by the U.S. government. Uh, they were indicted, they later uh, got the courts to throw the indictments out, but the U.S. government, the, the federal judicial, the federal, uh, the Justice Department, actually indicted the leaders of the movement for uh, attempting to, um, it was uh, attempting to fix an election because there was an election in the middle of all this. And of course, they were demanding that, you know, the elected position, uh, the, that, the, uh, that certain people be elected. Uh, and, um, and, and the movement was pretty much destroyed. Now, two years later, in, in, uh, in Birmingham, the sit-in movement targeted not the government. The government was Bull Connor, you know, the most infamous of all the sheriffs in the South in those days and even till now. I mean, he's one of the few uh, segregationist villains who actually get into the high school history books, right? Because he just had such a vicious approach to handling demonstrations, right? Um, the movement did not target the local government. They did not sit in in the, uh, in the local government buildings. Instead, what they did is they targeted the downtown businesses. They made demands directly on those businesses. They said, you have to stop discriminating against an employment. You have to stop telling black, uh, black customers that they couldn't try clothes on, that they had to buy them rather than try clothes on because you couldn't contaminate the, the, uh, uh, the dressing rooms that white people were going to use with black hoodies. Um, and, uh, and of course, there was tremendous resistance, tremendous resistance. And, um, and this was Birmingham, Alabama. You know, this isn't any old place. This is a, you know, Alabama and Mississippi are the two worst of the southern, uh, southern states. And uh, the movement got bigger and bigger. And pretty soon what was happening was is that every single day there were huge demonstrations downtown, sit-ins, people sitting in the street, people sitting in the big department stores, sitting in the little, uh, the little uh, stores and demanding full integration. And the amount, of, the amount of arrests were tremendous. You know, uh, Martin Luther King is arrested in Birmingham also. He writes his famous letter from the Birmingham jail in which he says that the only way that we are going to get, get our rights are to disrupt business as usual and make it impossible for 
uh, the country to continue to function or for the businesses to continue to function. The really critical element of this, I mean, there's a lot of little pieces to this story that are very interesting that I think, um, I, I think make, make this, uh, this thing even more crystalline. For example, uh, what, what the white folks of, of Birmingham, they were not, they did not want to give in. It's not as though the white people of Birmingham were saying, come on, this is just getting too bad. We can't shop downtown. Of course, they couldn't shop downtown, right? It, it, it was impossible for them to shop downtown. They might have if there was any way to do it. The stores downtown were losing money. They were just going bankrupt because they were getting no business at all, right? Uh, people were commuting 30, 40 miles to other places to get food because they couldn't get it downtown. So um, uh, the business leaders of Birmingham went to the local political leadership and said, we're going to negotiate. we got to give in. We can't handle this anymore. And this isn't a matter that the business leaders were the liberals all along. In fact, the, the guy that was the leader of the business leaders had also previously been the head of the White Citizens Council, which was the organization that was most actively resisting integration, you know, outside of the governments themselves. So they just gave in. They just gave in because they realized that this was not going to end. Once they saw that it was not going to end, that every time they, you know, they organized, the Ku Klux Klan organized what they called Klan blockades into the black neighborhoods of uh, Birmingham, in which they would drive through the neighborhoods and they would know where uh, an important activist was living. So when they drove past that activist's house, there'd be four or five or six of these Klan cars drive past and they would shoot into that house and into the houses surrounding it, right? As a kind of, let's terrify people into stop protesting. And those things resulted in even more demonstrations. Right. And so once they saw that it wasn't going to end, that they were going to either have to accept the basic destruction of the downtown uh, as, a, as a business place, as a place of business, or give in, they went to the local political leadership and they said, let's do it. And they actually integrated Birmingham. Uh, and, um, and then, you know, all the local laws had to be compromised and changed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that was the start of it. And um, uh, and that, by the way, was also the start of the uh, Civil Rights Act, which is, uh, you know, the, uh, people don't understand that when the Civil Rights Acts were passed, it wasn't just because uh, Northern and Western legislators finally decided they were going to do this. Right? It was also that the Southern legislators decided they weren't going to pulled the, all the stops off to oppose it. They were giving in. They were giving up. And they were giving up because the movement was just too strong. And it was too able to disrupt business as usual. And that is the phrase that, uh, that Martin Luther King used when he said we have to disrupt business as usual. And that is the phrase that really captures the essence of this, is that when you are capable of disrupting, definitively disrupting, perpetually disrupting, it's not going to end unless something changes. 
when you disrupt business as usual in that fashion, that's exactly when the corporate leadership starts looking for a lesser evil solution. That's when the corporate leadership will relax its resistance to some kind of good reform and say, well, maybe better to have this reform and get peace than to not have the reform and have this war go on forever. And that's what is the basic underlying logic that, uh, that, that flows from that particular example, but in general is, uh, is what we think is the key to enacting, let's call it anti-corporate reform in the case of the corporations. Yeah, Kevin, do you have anything you want to add to this? Another important element of civil rights activism is how it enforced legislative enforcement. And you look at some of the civil rights movements regarding anti-poverty programs, but key to your analysis is not just the way they push to get legislation through, but then make sure it actually does what it's supposed to do. How did activists ensure that the victories won at the bargaining table were sustained and enforced? Well, if we look at the history of the Economic Opportunity Act, uh, which was the signature legislation of uh, Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty, uh, which was signed in 1964, um, I think that this act and the the larger struggle around the act um, tell us a few really important things about the 1960s. And one is that black activism in the 60s was never just about dismantling legal segregation. Uh, it was also about economic justice. And for so many black organizers in the 60s and before and, and since, really, uh, economic justice has been inseparable from the cause of um of ending segregation and ending racial terror. So if we look at the example of the 1963 March on Washington, um, it was the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. That was the full title of it. Uh, so it was also about the right of all people to um, have decent jobs at a living wage, uh, in addition to uh, racial integra integration. So that economic justice piece was always central to the black freedom struggle, um, and including in the 1960s. So for, for that reason, the, the term civil rights movement um, sometimes tends to, or it risks obscuring that larger um, economic justice piece that's, that's so important to remember. Um, now, if you look at the example of the war on, war on poverty legislation, this is something that comes indirectly out of the, the black struggles of the early 60s in the South, um, such that the uh, war on poverty itself is almost impossible to imagine without that preceding era of disruptive black activism. Uh, now, uh, in 1964, the legislation was passed and Lyndon Johnson signed it. Um, but what happened afterwards is very interesting. And it's another case in which the implementation or the enforcement of legislation uh, is such a crucial phase and is so important to understanding um, the impact that uh, legislation that makes it through Congress uh, actually has on the ground. So we decided to look systematically at the U.S. South throughout the uh, mid to, to late 1960s and to actually look at 
uh, where the federal anti-poverty dollars were spent. So we looked at over 700 counties throughout the South and uh, the um, amount of federal dollars that were allocated to each of those counties. So then we, we took into account a lot of other variables, um, you know, the uh, number of poor people in each county, um, the number of black people versus white people in each county. Um, and so this is the, the big quantitative piece of the book. Um, but the, the most striking thing that we found here is that there was, first of all, enormous variation in terms of how much each county in the South received in federal anti-poverty money. And the variation is not explicable based on the levels of poverty. It's not as if the Johnson White House was just directing anti-poverty funds to the areas that needed it the most. That's not how it happened. Um, The areas that got the federal anti-poverty funding uh, for programs, you know, educational and job training programs and Head Start and all of those uh, really important kinds of things um, were precisely the areas where the black movement of the early 60s had been the strongest. So there's a there's a strong, significant relationship here, uh, statistically speaking, between the um, uh, the strength or the the presence of a disruptive black movement in Southern counties in the early 60s and the level of anti-poverty funding that those counties did or did not receive uh, later in the 1960s. Uh, that's, that's the first major finding of this piece of the book. And then the second part is that um, we also looked at uh, who the movement targeted in the South. Did they target, for instance, uh, local politicians? Did they target local businesses? Did they target the schools that were still segregated? Uh, did they target other um, entities within the white power structure? And uh, what we found is that um, the movements, uh, the the local movements and campaigns that targeted both business and government in their given locales tended to be more powerful. And in one measure of that that power, that efficacy, is the amount of federal anti-poverty funds that they received later in the decade. So this is another uh, instance in which uh, a movement um, was uh, more powerful if it targeted not just um, the officials in government, but also uh, the local business structure. So it goes back to Martin Luther King's insight that the political power structure listens to the economic power structure. That's what he concluded after the Birmingham Birmingham campaign in late 1963. And uh, the likely reason for that is that the business owners, especially in, um, in urban areas of the South, uh, actually lobbied uh, local politicians and national politicians um, for anti-poverty funding in their counties. Um, so in response to this, the uh, disruptive, uh, disruptive uh, actions of the movements in their counties in the early 60s, uh, they, they said, well, um, in order to placate the movement, in order to uh, prevent future disruption to our business interests, uh, it makes sense um, for uh, these federal anti-poverty programs to proceed. So the this is another case in which the um, support of local business elites, local white business elites for progressive programs helped to 
um, compensate or uh, to counter um, the racist resistance of the rest of the white power structure. Uh, so I think this is this is another um, uh, facet of this struggle in the 1960s that Michael was talking about, uh, and it's another case in which the uh, the Im- implementation in terms of the actual allocation of federal money uh, that followed the uh, Economic Opportunity Act's passage uh, is really important. That implementation was shaped uh, so centrally and so uh, so strongly by um, the, uh, the presence and the disruptiveness of uh, black movements in the South. Turning to the anti, oh, go oh, ahead. If I could add um, just a, a, a postscript to that. I think that the, the findings that the stronger the movement, the larger the allocations, and even just whether or not the poverty program appeared in any consistent, serious form in the local areas uh, is a very important uh, component to understanding how politics work. Not just the idea that the strength of the movement won that, right? But if we look at the um, Obamacare, when Obamacare came in, the big question for states was, whether they were going to expand um, um, Medicaid, right, in order to access all these resources from Obamacare. And I think that when when Obamacare was was finally settled upon, uh, the, most, of, uh, most of the observers, most of the political activists who were involved in it really thought that the Republican states would not be able to resist this delicious infusion of money right into their states. And yet a large number of states simply refused to do the expansion and therefore refused the money and said, you know, essentially I mean what we saw was is their willingness to say, I'd rather have no money than to give it to those people. Right? Those people being black people. And the same logic applied in the South during uh, the early years of the poverty program, which is the local power structure, segregationist, racist, anti-federal, they didn't want the money. But the places that got it were the places with strong movements because those movements had beaten down that opposition. It wasn't just that they were strong movements and therefore attracted the attention of the federal government, but also they reduced the resistance of the local of the local elites who said, well, let them have the poverty money, then maybe we won't get as much disruption. So it's very important to see that a lot of what the effect of social movements is, is not to sort of directly win something, but to beat down or reduce the opposition of their main adversary. Yeah, moving along and turning to the anti-war movement, a very different dynamic is in play since uh, where we've been talking about protest against local business, much uh, anti-war protest has to target this broader military industrial complex, which isn't accountable to the same forces, although that doesn't mean it's invulnerable. So how were activists able to apply pressure to start shifting not only popular opinion about the war, but congressional opinion as well? Um, 
so, so the really important thing, what and mostly neglected by histories of the war, is to understand that the United States military, the greatest military in the world, the most powerful military in the world, was basically defeated by a guerrilla war, by the Vietnamese people, by the Viet, what in the United States was called the Viet Cong, the National Liberation Front, and then eventually the, uh, uh, the North Vietnamese also joined the struggle. Uh, and that that's a social movement. That's a social movement, a liberation movement, fighting against the government. Not in many ways very, very different from what we usually talk about when we're talking about social movement. But in many ways very similar to a social movement, which is that you're taking on a big, powerful government agency and you've got the one thing you have is the willingness of the masses of people to refuse to function, refuse to allow business as usual, to refuse to allow the economy of Vietnam in this case to function. Right. And then the United States goes in to try to force them to accept the leadership and the structure, the economic structure that they, they have there, which is a landlord structure, right? And these people resist and they just keep resisting and they just keep resisting and they make the country basically dysfunctional. Now that's the fundamental thing. So what the U.S. is doing is investing more and more and more and more and more of its resources into fighting this war, right? And what the anti-war movement is doing is trying to make it more and more and more difficult for them to conduct the war. And the way that they're making it more and more difficult for them to conduct the war is essentially making the war more and more and more expensive. Between the Vietnamese and the anti-war movement, that's what's happening, is the war is getting more and more and more expensive. I mean, on the American side, it's not just that the protests are very large and people are... Uh, are, you know, expressing an incredible antagonism to it. There's also the fact that recruiting soldiers is getting to be an incredible, almost impossible, impossible project. The resistance to the draft was incredible by the end. In, in Oakland, for example, which was one of the centers of the anti-war movement, 50% of the of the draftees did not show up towards the end of the war. Fifty percent did not show up. They became fugitives from justice. After the war was over, you know, uh, President uh, uh, President Carter actually ended up amnestying tens of thousands of people who were effectively fugitives who had refused to report for induction. Uh, the, on the Vietnamese side, soldiers were refusing to fight. They were getting stoned instead. And when officers tried to make them fight, they often shot their soldiers. It's a whole uh, concept of fragging that arose, right? So what this did was it made it harder and harder for the United States to fight this war. And in order to do this, they had to put more and more and more troops in. They had to put more and more money in. They had to do all sorts of things. They they uh, mobilized the National Guard, which is a very, very expensive proposition, and they were putting 
They are diverting resources from all sorts of government programs in order to fight the war. What eventually occurs, what eventually occurs is that President Johnson, still committed to fighting the war, he's, he's got the generals, he's got the generals saying, uh, you know, yeah, we need another 100,000 troops and then we need a lot more armaments and we've got some really great military strategies that we're going to use. We're going to invade the neighboring countries in order to stop their supplies and uh, further escalation, further escalation, right? He had a group of basically business advisors. There was an advisory group called the Wise Men who had existed for some years already. And they met regularly to discuss the war. And one day, Johnson comes with his latest escalation proposal, and uh, and the uh, wise men say, we don't think it's worth it. They're, and what, what did they invoke? They said, we're wrecking the economy. Our businesses are being threatened. Their viability is being threatened by this war. And that was the start of the de-escalation. And as the de-escalation took place and the war continued, and the American army really began to fall apart. They couldn't get the they couldn't get the troops. The troops were shooting their officers. The troops were sh- uh, refusing to fight. The army was collapsing. The military decided that the lesser evil for them was to get out. So what what you had lined up there was against the political leadership. You had. Both the military and the business leadership saying out. And that is what drove the de escalation and end of the war in the U.S. withdrawal. So you've got exactly the same thing as in Birmingham, only on a national level. You had the disruption of the, the economy. Business as usual can't go on. We're stretching the economy. We've got inflation. We have all these different problems. And the major institution that is fighting this war is suffering from collapse. And so between those two institutions, the war became unviable and they withdrew. So it's, once again, disrupt business as usual. Another example of change in the military that you look at is the repeal of don't ask, don't tell. And it's, um, you argue that this was less an effect of Obama or any particular politician, but was instead the result of a large scale effort or collection of efforts by the LGBTQ community, as well as active members of the military who organized to put pressures not on politicians, but on military leaders. So can you explain what happened here and what set this uh, motion ahead and and what set this movement apart from other attempts to kind of push this sort of political change forward? So the don't ask, don't tell policy within the military lasted from 1993 up until 2010. Uh, It was originally um, enacted as a sort of compromise 
by the Clinton administration uh, to allow gay and lesbian soldiers to continue um, to be in the military uh, with the uh, under the condition that they uh, don't openly identify as gay or lesbian um, and uh, don't out themselves in any way. Um, so that was the compromise that the Clinton administration reached uh, with the military leadership at the time in response to uh, this pressure from below, uh, f- uh, from the LGBT movement and so on, uh, including within the military's own ranks. Uh, now, that policy continued up until Obama was inaugurated. And early on, Obama signaled that uh, he was opposed to the policy. Um, He thought soldiers uh, uh, should be able to um, uh, express their sexuality openly without fear of reprisal. Um, And the interesting thing here is that Obama had the full legal authority to rescind the policy uh, and to make it perfectly legal uh, for LGBT uh, soldiers uh, to uh, openly identify. Um, but he refused to use that legal power. Uh, instead, he went to the military and he made clear from the start that the military's consent uh, is going to be essential to um, rescinding this policy. Um, so that's why nothing happened during the first year of Obama's uh, time in office. Uh, but in 2010, that changed. And the military leadership, including the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Mike Mullen, um, actually came out in uh, in favor of repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, and that's the point at which the policy uh, was, uh, was done away with uh, in 2010. Uh, now, why did the position of the military leadership change? Uh, well, it changed first and foremost, because of resistance within the ranks. Uh, first of all, the, um, the military was losing thousands of personnel, including skilled personnel that it was very reliant upon uh, to um, undertake its wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, so it was especially reliant on um, the skilled linguists who needed to uh, translate for the interrogation and torture sessions, um, who spoke Arabic and Farsi in particular. Um, so it was losing large numbers of those linguists uh, due to the don't ask, don't tell policy because they, you know, they either outed themselves uh, intentionally or were outed uh, by superiors or fellow officers as as a, a you know, method of reprisal. Um and uh, so this this created, even though it wasn't necessarily the uh, the work of an organized social movement within the ranks, it nonetheless created this enormous disruption. Where over the course of the "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" policy, the the military lost uh, thousands upon thousands of uh, people, uh, soldiers to this um, policy. So this started to create a real um, strain on uh, the. Um, uh, the number of personnel and the availability of skilled personnel for some of these um, important functions like uh, interpretation. Um, a second key source of resistance were the lawsuits um, that the LGBT movement um, uh, uh, 
brought to court uh, against the military, suing them over the existence of this discriminatory don't ask, don't tell policy. Uh, And there have been a number of lawsuits over the years, but uh, right around the time Obama was coming into office is when uh, there was uh, finally a breakthrough where there was a judge in California who ruled in favor of the plaintiffs and said that the don't ask, don't tell policy was illegal uh, and the military needed to uh, needed to repeal it. Um, so that uh, that instance of a um, judicial decision, which could potentially cause great disruption within the military, uh, disruption in the sense that if a, if a judge orders the ending of this policy, um, then it's potentially just going to be imposed on the military from, from outside, uh, something that the military certainly didn't want to uh, have to deal with. Um, so, uh, you know, that was uh, the, the case might have gone uh, up until up to the Supreme Court. This was, you know, a, a judge at a lower level who made this ruling um, that threatened the, pro- the prospect of um, a court ordered end to the don't ask, don't tell policy. So that uh, even without having to go up to the higher levels of the judicial system, that really inspired fear in the military leadership and in the Obama administration. Um, so they ended up moving in response. Uh, the military officers in the White House moved in response um, to find a way to end the policy um, on their own terms, which they did in 2010. So this is another case in which um, Obama had the legal authority to end the policy. Uh, But because of the military's key uh, role in in controlling um, decisions and policies within its own institutional domain, including don't ask, don't tell, um, Obama felt that he had to go to the military leadership and negotiate with them. You know, although he was nominally the commander in chief, uh, he really didn't have the effective power to uh, end the policy. Congress didn't even have the effective power to end the policy. The power was instead vested informally in the military leadership. Uh, just as when Don't Ask, Don't Tell had been instituted under the Clinton administration in 93, um, it was instituted, like I said, through a, um, a negotiation process between the politicians and uh, the military leadership. And that's the same way uh, that it ended in 2010. And it ended precisely because of this uh, disruption in the ranks, which was partly due to um, this organized uh, gay rights movement. To wrap things up here, one thing you note is that every particular struggle will have its own particular dynamics and pressure points. So what works in one time and place may not easily transfer to another. But that doesn't mean there aren't some lessons we can draw from history. So in closing, and I'd like to hear from both of you on this, what are some key rules activists should bear in mind when trying to think about how to organize their own particular struggles in their own particular situations? I think that the first, the first and foremost principle is that even when we're talking about indubitably public policies, government policies, with the movement has to start by asking who is the adversary here? Not the Republican Party, but the big institutions that are opposed to the policy that we're interested in enacting and implementing. You have to identify who the enemy is. So in the examples we've been giving, the enemies have 
been pretty pretty clear, but in a lot of circumstances they're not so clear. Like for example, the poverty program. It's not exactly clear who the policy the the adversaries were, but they really were the local and state governments that were the the uh, the um, adversaries. So once you identify your adversaries, you then need to identify what their point of vulnerability is. What is a, what is the way to get leverage over them? And that requires looking at what they depend on from resources. Now, in the case of the civil rights movement, the local governments were were creatures of, in some very real sense, the local business structure. So that was, that becomes the adversary. The local business structure becomes the adversary because they are the ones that are the point of vulnerability for the local government. And so in every instance, there has to be this analysis that not only looks at who the adversary is, but also looks at their point of vulnerability where their weak point is. In the case of the 1930s, when the unions began their movement uh, in the auto industry, the auto industry had what nowadays is called a just-in-time system. There were places in the production system where every, every automobile went through that spot so that they could have strikes of 200 workers who, with the just-in-time system, would break the assembly line, and then nothing could be done. So that in General Motors, for example, uh, 200 workers actually shut down the entirety of GM because all the engines came through there. Now, the strike eventually involved many more workers, but they understood that that was the point, that was the choke point. So you have to look for the point of vulnerability. And then you have to tailor your movement to that. So in the case of, for example, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, it turned out that there was a real point of vulnerability within the, within the, uh, uh, within the military because the process of expelling gay and lesbian soldiers was so disruptive to the functioning of the government. To, to the military. So the military was faced with this choice of, of en masse, first of all, resisting these people, second of all, expelling these people, third of all, dealing with the very disruptive uh, 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 judicial process that, that developed. So it, in each case, you have to find that point where the leverage is. The leverage comes from the ability to disrupt the adversary and force the, disrupt business as usual and therefore force the adversary to get a seat. I, I didn't say that for a while. Yeah, and I would just add a couple points that I think are complementary to what Michael was saying. Uh, one is, uh, in regard to the way that movements come about determining who the adversary is, 
and uh, what the potential pressure points are. Um, one point that we make in the book, although it's not, we haven't really uh, talked about it explicitly here, is the importance of internal movement democracy. Um, and when we say movement democracy, we're not just talking about uh, holding formal elections within our uh, movement organizations. We're also talking about the need for local experimentation and the need for collective strategizing at the rank and file level, not just at the level of the formal leadership, uh, and thinking creatively um, and, and analytically about where these uh, pressure points are, where these points of vulnerability are in the social structure, as Michael was saying. Um, so uh, in order to... Um, uh, in order to uh, develop the most effective analysis and the most effective strategy, uh, we need to have um, constant experimentation and uh, collective discussion about strategy within our movements. And I think that, you know, in my experience in, in social movements, and, and uh, maybe Michael could speak to this too, you know, he's, he was around for a long time before I was uh, in social, on the social movement scene, but, uh, you know, there, there really isn't enough discussion about strategy within social movements, uh, at least in my experience. Uh, too often, organizers and activists tend to default to this approach of, you know, mobilizing people to call our legislators or to protest at their offices or, you know, on the more militant side, maybe, you know, have sit-ins and conduct civil disobedience at, you know, politicians' uh, offices and so on. Um, and, you know, I don't want to disparage those kinds of tactics. They can sometimes be effective, but, uh, you know, it's, it's not all there is. And, and we need to have a, a more uh, direct and more uh, conscious uh, discussion ongoing about the ways that social movements can achieve leverage. Um, and not just by targeting politicians, but uh, more importantly, by targeting, uh, targeting the forces that uh, lie behind the politicians and that give the politicians their their marching orders. Um, so I think that the the importance of this internal strategizing and internal experimentation is really important. And it's something that uh, unites all of the different case studies of successful, successful social movements that we've talked about, uh, whether it was in the 1930s with different workers uh, in different uh, auto plants or different sections of the same plant, uh, experimenting with uh, different ways to disrupt the, uh, the flow of business or the flow of parts along the assembly line, uh, or whether it was in the 1960s with um, all of these uh, proliferating civil rights campaigns throughout the South um, in places like Birmingham, where they, they developed the local activists. It wasn't just you know, the Martin Luther Kings and the Southern Christian Leadership Council and, and so on uh, developing these strategies. It was also local organizers. There's people like uh, Fred Shuttlesworth uh, and his uh, group of organizers in Birmingham uh, who developed some of these um, these really potent strategies of targeting business with sit-ins and with uh, marches and boycotts. Um, and, you know, likewise with the Viet Vietnamese example. Um, so the, the uh, importance of, of flexibility and, and strategizing and experimentation within the movement is a really important point. And then the, the other thing I would say is that uh, we often assume, uh, including on the left, we often assume that in order to have um, social change, in order to win progressive reforms, we need the majority on our side. 
And I think that that assumption undergirds so much of social movement activism in the United States today. There's this assumption that we need to get the majority of the public on our side and mobilized in favor of a change. Um, Now, it doesn't hurt to have the majority of the public on your side, uh, but I don't think it's the most important factor. Um, Organizers in Birmingham in 1963 did not have the majority on their side, Uh, certainly not the majority in Alabama, certainly not the majority in the South as a whole. Um, Black people were a minority in the U.S. South in the 60s, but they were able to get what they needed, um, or at least a big part of what they needed, by creating disruption, which did not rely on having the majority on their side. It relied on having um, a large portion of a strategically located and structurally powerful constituency, um, like uh, consumers in the case of Birmingham, who could uh, generate enough disruption in the system and disrupt business as usual to a sufficient extent that the uh, a portion of the elite would come around and um, pressure politicians for a different policy. So I think that that uh, that that's another point that social movements of of today would uh, do well to keep in mind. All right, that brings us to the end of all my questions. So Kevin Young and Michael Schwartz, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having us. It's been illuminating for me as well. I hope to ask your audience. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. Those are great questions too. Uh, it's it's really nice to have uh, you know thoughtful and uh, and detailed questions about your work.